Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Amanda. Welcome back to Westminster Reimagined, a special series on the New Statesman podcast that looks at how politics works and if it can be done better. In this episode, we'll be joined by economist and former trader Gary Stevenson and grassroots campaigner against air pollution, Rosamond Adukati Deborah, to discuss how to make change outside of Westminster. Now, Armando, why are we discussing this, what we're calling parallel politics? Parallel, I think, because especially over the last four or five years, single issue campaigns have grown in prominence. And I think more and more people are turning away from the traditional party model of how politics works and are injecting their passion for a topic or passion for a cause into campaigning outside Westminster. Now, whether that involves working alongside elected officials, MPs, councillors or whatever, or seeking to have some change, raising awareness of an issue or a change in legislation from completely from outside, getting popular public backing, I think it's become much more prominent in the last three or four years. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk to Two people who, for very different reasons, with very different subjects, have decided to campaign outside the Westminster bubble. Yeah. And we've seen so many examples in recent years of this. You know, Jack Monroe, for example, changing the way that the ONS is going to display how inflation is impacting people, for example. Marcus Rashford campaigning for free school meals for children over the school holidays during the pandemic. There's so many examples of people who are working outside the system to try and influence it from within and gaining some success at it. One thing that we'll discuss is whether actually is that letting the government off the hook in terms of, you know, transferring a lot of the obligations that we normally expect government to provide onto the hands of charities and, and support groups outside. To help us get to the bottom of this and even imagine how things could be different, we've invited a couple of special guests. Rosamond Adekisi Debra is a grassroots campaigner in London. After her nine-year-old daughter, Ella, growing up by the South Circular, died from a rare and severe form of asthma in 2013. She founded the Ella Roberta Family Foundation, which campaigns to improve the lives of children affected by asthma. In December 2020, a coroner ruled in a landmark ruling that air pollution was a factor in Ella's death, the first person in the UK to have air pollution listed on their death certificate. The foundation aims to improve the lives of children affected like this, and it engages with politicians and policymakers, as well as young people. And we're also joined by Gary Stevenson, who's an economist and former interest rate trader. In 2011, he became Citibank's most profitable trader globally by correctly predicting that the impact of wealth inequality on demand would doom the recovery from the 2008 financial crash. 
He went on to study economics and inequality at Oxford University and now works as an economist dedicated to researching and educating people around wealth inequality using YouTube explainers. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you. As I said in the introduction, both of you have had two very significant uh, experiences in your life that you've decided to to dedicate really to campaigning publicly. What was it that sort of motivated you to do that? Because in, in either case, you could have done things differently. You could have either decided just to move on or you could have decided, Gary, you could have retired <laughs> forever yeah. on, on your earnings. What was it that prompted you to think, I want to make a change? I don't think I set out that way. In the beginning, I, I have to confess, I was very focused on my daughter. The obsession that drove me was the fact that I said to her before she died, I would try and get an answer as to why she had become so severely ill, so sudden. And when I met my lawyer, Jocelyn Coburn, she told me about the process. And I, I remember one of the things Jocelyn told me when I said, we've got you know an, an incredibly strong case. And she was like, you still have to go and speak to the media. And I, I remember saying to her at the time, do I have to? Because if our case is strong, why do I have to speak to people? And she said, no, no, you need to make people aware about this. And the biggest task we actually had was to get the Attorney General. I think people have forgotten about it. But before we could even have a second inquest, we had to get the first one quashed. Now, I think, I don't know how many cases, probably on double double hands or probably one hand, this is normally not done. And not only did I want the Attorney General to quash it, when I got there to hand in the petition that the public kindly signed, and I think it stands at 180,000 for today, one of the assistants said, do you have any other message you want to give to him? And I said, oh, yes, actually, not only do I want him to quash it, but the coroner who sat at the first inquest, the one I want him to quash, could you kindly say to the coroner, it's not personal, but I'd like him to sit on the second one as well. <laughs> so it's got nothing to do with his ruling. It's just I've got new evidence. And I remember it was at the height of Brexit and the Attorney General was heavily involved in it. And I think we waited over six months to get a decision. It was so nerve wracking. But I remember that in January 2019, going to the High Court and they got the most senior um, judges there to quash it. And I, I think I was just overwhelmed for months. That was even before the inquest came. But I thought the British public were amazing. I, I, I mean, they still are. I don't know what it is about my daughter. They were just amazing. But we had to do that. We had to get them on board because one of the reasons why he would quash it was if it is in the public interest. And I believed with all my might that people do want to know about the air they are breathing. And mm. I had to go around also proving to the British public a lot of the illnesses. And this was before COVID, you know, all these long waiting lists and things like that. A contributory factor is down to the air you are breathing, the cancers, the dementia. Yeah, and, and I spoke to my children about it because I would have to sacrifice and give up quite a bit of family time. And I wasn't sure. And I bumped into one of my students and she was like, ah, oh, Miss Deborah, you can do that easily. You know, you've done loads of assemblies before. So just, <laughs> just sort of look upon it that way. As a massive assembly. Yeah. And, and she said, just be you. Because I was really worried because I'd never done anything so publicly before. Well, I was going to say it, it must have involved a number of skills that you suddenly had to pick up, like media, how, how to work the media, how to campaign, how to engage. No, no, no. I've to... never had any. I've never, <laughs> ever, ever, ever had 
any training on that. So I transferred from a head of year, head of sixth form. But I'd, I'd left that. When when Ella died, I just couldn't teach anymore. Mm -hmm. So um, I wasn't even doing that. No, I haven't had any training. But I think communicating has never been a problem for me. If you're head of year, head of sixth form, you know, mm -hmm. you were used to these big year groups and they range from your CDs to your AA stars. And when when you give messages in, in, in assembly, all of them have to understand what you're talking about. You can't have a situation after assembly that, you know, half the year group will come up and go, I didn't understand you. So, you know, you have to be concise, you have to be clear. So I knew, you know, this, the sort of seven C's. So that sort of stuff, I knew it from my teacher. And I've been teaching since 97. And I just see this as, you know, as educating the public. It's slightly different. I'm not going into a classroom and switching on a whiteboard, but in a way it is teaching. And you, Gary, when you decided to cash in <laughs> and, and move out, <laughs> What was it that prompted you to decide I'm not going to go? I'm not going to buy a yacht and disappear. I wish I could have afforded a yacht, um, but I never wanted to be an activist. I never wanted to be a campaigner. I never wanted to be a politician. I was not really interested in politics growing up. I just wanted to be really, really good at my job. That's all I wanted to do. I, and I wanted to make money. You know, I come from a poor background. I wanted yeah. to make money, make money Same for me, way. for my family. And, you know, I was, I was lucky. I, I was able to go to London School of Economics, a very prestigious university, get this really desirable job um, as a trader for Citibank by winning a card game. And I found myself sitting on a trading floor in 2008 during the crisis with, you know, people sitting all around me who were making a million pounds a year. I didn't know that at the time, but this is what these people were doing. And I watched the 2008 crisis happen, completely unpredicted. And I watched them all say, well, next year things will get better, 2009, and it didn't. And I watched them all say, well, next year things will get better, 2010, and it didn't. And I watched them all say, well, next year things will get better, 2011, and then 2012, and then 2013, and then 2014. And even then, I didn't want to be a campaigner. I just thought, I cannot believe these guys, the best paid economists in the world, have got no idea what they're doing. And to be honest, it was pound signs in my eyes. I can make money if I figure out what's going on. And it was just a case of my job was to understand what's happening. And I became obsessed with understanding what was happening. And I realized the problem was inequality. The problem was inequality. They don't understand it. I understand it. Nobody's fixing it. Things won't get better. I bet on it and I made millions of pounds. You know, you, you were a great comedian in your time. Imagine you spent years in and my years. Time, in my time. I'm sure you still are. <laughs> you, spent, you spent years Ouch. and years. You spent, I was a big fan when I was a child. You spent years when and years. When you were a child, child. yes. yes. <laughs> still, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still. He's really throwing himself under the bus here. <laughs> you spent years and years mastering your craft, right? Mm. And that's what I did. I reached the top. I saw tsunamis coming to hit this country and the world for the economy. And that's not what I wanted to see. But that's what is happening. Oh, by the way, one thing I have to disagree with you. I don't think you got there. You were lucky. I think you worked your backside That's off. That's very kind of you, as No, I think so. He, but, the, you know, bright people always say things like that. <laughs> He's extremely intelligent and he worked really hard. He didn't just accidentally get there. I can tell you that. You do have PR skills. But for Gary. <laughs> if you want to see me boasting about it, there's lots of that on my YouTube. So you have, have a look. So, of course, you have to pick up kind of media skills then same as Rosamond and it's you know I'm an economist and I'm, I'm a mathematician by my background but you know I left the, the job and I was like I have to tell people what's happening I wrote this website which is called wealtheconomics.org which is like anyone can go read it but it's just a text website and it explains really clearly how wealth inequality destroys an economy and it took me like months to write this really clearly and then I sat down like great I've made this website no one's ever going to see it because no one knows who I am and then I was like what do I do how, how do I spread this message you know and then I went to Oxford because I thought the academics might help, but they were 
the poshest, richest guys around just doing maths at whiteboards or in capes. They got no interest. <laughs> oh, really? So I realised I have to use my story to try. And this is, you know, we had similar things because when I first started, no one picked up my case, and we'd got all the research and stuff. But you know, we needed more than that, so we needed someone, you know, like an expert. Yeah. And it, oh my god, that's so amazing! We've got very similar stories. We we, we had a fantastic case, yeah. but we couldn't go to court with just a fantastic case. We needed yeah. experts. You need to you need to figure out how do I get this support? Yeah. How do I get the how do I get this story in front of people? How eyes? do you navigate the whole yeah. system? And it's been difficult, I guess. Yeah, you know. especially when you don't know. It, it is not my world. Teaching was my world. You know, you need academics. You know, experts. And we only got Holgate, Stephen Holgate, the expert witness in Ella's case. And I just happened to have done an interview in the standards. And you know how when people come and they've got to go long journeys back on the train, yeah. he picks up a standard and you saw the paper. Can you believe it? It's one of those yeah. things, you know, Yeah, you have to work hard to get good luck. Yes, you have to kind of make your own opportunities, don't yeah. you? Yes. The schools that you've acquired now, are you ever tempted to go into party politics? Or I tried it briefly <laughs> and, and I got my, my fingers burnt and Stephen said to me, well, you had to try it because he said, now that you've tried it for a bit, come back where you belong. Because years ago, I started off at the Institute of Psychiatry. That's, that's the other thing you also have to overcome, by, by the way, the barriers. I think when I started, some people were acting as if I hadn't got a GCSE, which was very patronising. But, you know, you're so determined, you sort of let those things go by or you'll show up to speak and <laughs> they weren't sort of expecting mm. like a black female or mm. you speak eloquently. And I thought, well... I have to because I used to be a teacher. Mm. But my thing was getting justice for my daughter, which I am halfway there. I'm still not there yet. But there are lots of barriers, by the way, because one's not part of the old boys network. And that's what Gary yeah. was talking about. You know, he had to make his own luck in a way. And yeah. it, it is a struggle. There are many days and nights when one has sort of giving up. But I think for me, it was obviously my daughter who who had died. I had other children who I knew were going to say, so what happened to her? And that mm. drove me on. I was prepared, though, not to find out. And what I mean by that is at the end of the first inquest, in, in this country, they said 99% of cases are solved. There, there, there are 1% of cases in this country that they never get to the bottom of it. And the coroner's officer, not the coroner, did warn me. She said, you know, I have looked at your, your daughter's case and it is really complicated. And I don't think you're going to get answers at this inquest, which was the first one. And she said, I don't know whether you ever get any answers. So my chances of getting an answer were not great, by the way. And can you tell us a bit more about, you said you had a brief foray in party politics. Oh, goodness me. Yes, I did. The atmosphere, people are so... I struggle with ideology. People who see my background is really like science, psychology, you know, there's research, there's evidence. Depending on the evidence you find, that's where, you know, you get all your thing from. But people are so entrenched in their, I don't know what it is. Even if something is wrong, they're not prepared to move. Whereas as a head of sixth form, you try something, doesn't work, you go, yeah. let's change it. Yeah. Not in politics. And 
I then realized that, oh my goodness, there is, I mean, you can see, for instance, why I was attracted to the Green Party, because when it came to clean air, they were the most obvious um, choice. But yeah, I should have thought, you know, you taught A-level politics, you should know better that there are other things apart from clean air, which might impact it. But Holgate laughed at me. He said, you you had to go and try it, didn't you? He said, I'm glad you've you've had the taste of it. Now that you've finished, come back to where where you belong (laughs) and stop messing about. I think that's what people find slightly intimidating about the idea of party politics, that that sense that you have to buy into the entire programme put by the party. And also, if you're in political life, you're expected to have a, a very specific set, pat answer yeah. as soon as you're asked a question. Yeah. Have you been approached, Gary? When I first started doing this, you know, I finished. I went to Oxford and I finished and I was like, I need to tell people. But I didn't know how. I don't. How do you get it out there? And I, I just threw my fishing hook all over the place. So I, I joined Labour and I joined Momentum. And I'm not really a political person, but I was like these, you know, at the time, these guys were talking about inequality. So I was like, maybe they'll help me get my voice mm. out, you know. And I got in touch with the guys at Navarro Media, like, you know, will you put me on the radio? But I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like approaching, you know, these are people you would approach, right? These are the guys talking about inequality. Um, but I was, I was concerned, like, I was working for a bank for a long time and I wasn't allowed to speak publicly. What I wanted to do was to explain to people what was happening. But, you know, you see politicians of all colours on the news and you can just see they're just giving you the party line. Mm. And mm. I want to tell people what's happening and I want to be able to, to speak the truth. You know yeah. what I mean? And I think people who see my YouTube, I think they see this guy is telling us at least what he genuinely believes. You know what I mean? And my concern is if I joined a party, then suddenly I'm not, al- I'm not allowed to say genuinely what I believe. You know, I, I think when it comes to economics, I really know this stuff and I want to be able to tell people what's really happening. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's called talking truth to power, basically. Yeah. And... It is a kind of form of censorship, you know, not being allowed to express your own views. So maybe that's why politics is not for us. Yeah. If it means towing the party but I was line. talking during uh, COVID. I was talking to my cleaner, one of these, cl- the only person who I was, my best friend during COVID, the only person who I ever He's saw. He's got a cleaner, people. <laughs> yeah. I've got to focus on my YouTube, guys, obviously. Um, she, she was like, my number one fan of my YouTube, actually, during, because back oh, then it cute. just started. Nobody was seeing it. And she was like, oh, YouTube's great. You should go into politics. You should become prime minister, this kind of thing. And I said, well... That might be one option, but you know, I'd have to join the Labour Party. And she said straight away, oh, I wouldn't vote for you if you're in the Labour Party. And oh, I think that wow. sort of that sort of told me, you know, I want to be able to tell people and people know this guy's speaking what he believes. You know, and at the moment, there's a lot of distrust from a lot of people about politicians. And very few people who work in the media are able to be completely independent. But I, very fortunately, I'm able to do that. So I don't want to give that up. I share that. Oh God, I'm quite. It's quite weird how how we we have we're very similar. This program has been very well put together. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think from <laughs> no, I think I think from my point of view is, and I feel an obligation. So I ask people to trust me, people to contribute to a change.org. So I'm not going to compromise that. I think if you have the British public's trust. You shouldn't dare abuse it because once it's gone, once trust is gone, you will never, ever, ever get it back. I I just don't think I could do it. Go on the radio and be asked a question and give an answer. That is not what I actually believe because some higher up has told me to do it. And I think recently, you know, with the whole party gate, when various MPs, right, ministers were, were hauled out, put on cameras, trying to justify why wandering into a back garden and seeing lots of cheese and wine and balloons <laughs> it was not a party. Yeah. You could see 
part of them dying inside, <laughs> as they were saying. Quite, you know, intelligent, normally very, very articulate people yeah. who were just tied up in knots trying to justify. No, no I don't think they were unjustified. tied up in knots at all. There, there is that saying, sorry seems to be the hard as well. They just should have just kept on saying sorry. They know deep down no one believes them anyway. Let's be honest about it. But in, from their position, they knew they weren't allowed to say sorry. That was that was the instruction because that admits oh. that admits guilt. Mm. You know, I'm talking about not the people being accused of, of breaking the rules, but the people going out to defend mm. the ones who were accused. You wouldn't want to be that person, rules. right? Have to go out and say, well, actually, I don't. It didn't not really a party when you consider there was only you know ten crates of beer or whatever. <laughs> but it's been interesting. There's been a whole slew of like BBC journalists leaving because they want to be able to have an opinion rather than. It's it's an interesting trend recently. People want to See, move away. I've, from I've never thought about that. Someone mm. asked me a question, I just answer it. Well, you're able to do that, you know. If you were employed by a political party or by a newspaper or a, a television company, yeah. you'd be able to do that. When you're campaigning, mm -hmm. you do have to presumably come into contact. Like you mentioned, the Attorney General, you have to come in contact with government and with politicians mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, so on. Mm -hmm. How do you find how do you find well, that? I see clean air. Clean air is political, but it's not a, from from my point of view, it's not about party politics. Although the Prime Minister still hasn't met me. I, I, I thought I should just say that on record. I can quite easily work with Mayor Khan to work with anybody. I mean, clean air ultimately is about saving lives. So you don't get to choose. I can't remember what station I actually went on that people got upset. I thought, calm down. This is something that affects everybody. So I don't sit there and go, that's a right wing paper or that's a mm. left wing. No, because they have readership. And if you're about bringing about change, which takes years and years, by the way, not just shut a few roads and then people will change their behavior. No, real behavior change takes years. But you need to get everybody involved. And that includes communities that normally don't get their voices heard to people, you know, all the way up to royalty, as in the royal family have been involved in climate issues. So it's something that affects all of us. Obviously, some are more adversely affected than, than others. And for me, it's been a learning curve as I've gone along. So I've now learned that um, lung disease is the poor person's disease. And that does affect how a lot of decisions are actually made. And some of it I actually knew already. One should be able to speak to everybody, from the person who sweeps the streets to the person who runs the country. Hi, Anoush here. We've got a special offer for Westminster Reimagined listeners. You can subscribe to The New Statesman for just a pound a week for 12 weeks. Just go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. And you can check out all our podcasts, including audio long reads and world review at newstatesman.com forward slash podcasts. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Mardwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads. Published every Saturday morning. 
Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. But do you find you might have to modify your language? Because if you said to a government minister, it's the poor person's disease. I've known in the, in the days of like Ian Duncan Smith, when he was in charge of welfare, you know, if you said something like that, then he would accuse you of making it a political issue. Mm. The, what, remember, there was a campaign, not a campaign, but there was a concerted message from, from Ian Duncan Smith that mentioning food banks was actually wrong because it was drawing attention to poverty and inequality and so on. So therefore, it was a, a, it was a political issue. You know, there's a, the, I don't think so. I think when it comes to clean air, one of the things we all know is that people are dying. So that's a fact. We know, for instance, there's a link between air pollution and COVID. And Sir Chris Whitty will be writing a report about it. The facts are the facts. Now, behind the scenes, when you're on Zoom or if you go in and speak to the minister, they're not going to do the party line. I assure you, I've spoken to Rebecca Powell, George Eustace, and we may differ on certain things. But when it comes to clean air thing, they know what I am about. That is why I have those meetings with them, because they are the government in charge. For the foreseeable future. They are the ones that are going to pass legislation. And for me, it's about persuading them. My whole thing is to say to them, look, the health of the nation is, is at stake. And I know one, some of the reasons why it, it is awkward is because it's the chancellor who's holding the purse strings. Of course I know that. I may not say that in the <laughs> meeting, but, but I do know. Am I happy with what the government have, has done so far? No, I think it, it's it's an insult to my daughter's memory. And I have said so. And they know I'm going to say so. And they know I'm not going to be quiet about it. They need to be much tougher. And the urgency isn't there. And people will continue to die. And they know as long as children continue to die in this country, 
I will continue to speak out. I mean, I can't, there is no more I can do for my daughter because she dies. And I wanted to get air pollution on her death certificate, which I have done that. But since she died, children continue to die. And I think it is obscene that well, in 2022, we have children in London, up to 12 every year, dying from asthma. And about a quarter of a million children in, in our capital have asthma. And around the UK, 1.1 million. I don't think that's acceptable. We've got a whole generation of children being on medicine because asthma is not curable. So that's why I'm very, very passionate about this topic. And what strikes me about both of your stories, there is a similarity, although you've come through very different experiences, to discover how inequality works in this country. Mm. So you mentioned lung disease being a poor person's disease, for example, and some communities being affected more than others from air pollution. Mm -hmm. And Gary, you've spoken before about the fact that because you knew what was happening to your friends back at home during the crash, you knew how people were actually sort of acting during the, the financial crisis, whereas some of your colleagues in the banking sector didn't. So do you think sort of politicians need people like you to be telling them this is what's actually happening on the ground? And are there enough people like you with the experiences you've had who are actually in those decision making positions? I think 100 percent, but not just politicians. Right. So, you know, I come from a poor background, but then I went to LSE, which is a very, very elite place. You know, this is where like Gaddafi sends his kids and, you know, where the Chinese Politburo send their kids. You know, this is like <laughs> international money sending their kids there. And then I went to work in the city, which is, again, there's this myth of the Cockney white boy trader. It doesn't exist. These guys are all like from very privileged backgrounds. Mm. Then I went to Oxford, which is, you don't even need me to say it. This is the poshest of all of these places. And then I've been working in media and now I've been involved with politicians. And all of these spaces are dominated by people who are nothing like the people I grew up with. Nothing like ordinary people. They haven't experienced poverty. They don't know what it's like. They don't know what it's like to not be sure how the kids are going to afford a home. They don't know this. And what drives me mad the people who know difficulty are not represented in any of these spaces. This is the reason why I chose not to go into politics, but to go directly to the people. Even before I had the YouTube, I was writing a lot of articles. You know, I wrote for The Guardian, I wrote for Open Democracy, and I got quite well known in this sort of people who read about left-wing economics, okay? Which is an extremely privileged space. That's the truth of the matter, right? And the people who are reading my articles were people who were rich people. Politicians were getting in touch and they were rich people. And the politicians in charge were rich people. They were all exactly like the people I studied with at Oxford. And all of these guys are talking about it, but they're not being affected by it. They are not being affected by it. And I know that I'm rich nowadays, you know, but I didn't grow up rich. My family is not rich. My friends from back home are not rich. So I see how this is affecting real people. And I don't want to be just speaking to rich people. So that, that's, why, yeah, he, that's why it's not politics, but direct action. If you want action on inequality, is, is there a point where you have to decide to engage with the politicians? I will. I will. I, was, I went to Parliament. I was in Parliament on Thursday, like a roundtable with politicians from all the parties. And, you know, they're talking, yeah, yeah, it's a nice idea, but what about this? But what about that? And you know these people's feet are not to the fire and their family's feet are not to the fire and their friends' feet are not to the fire. And don't get me wrong, at some point we need those people to make the change happen, but they will not make the change happen unless it's the real people who are suffering in this country mm -hmm. who force them to do it. So I need the ordinary people of the country to be passionate about this issue so that we can force the politicians Same to take here. action. If you go just to the politicians, they'll give you a million blah, so blah, how blahs. Do we, how do we make that connection? We need to continue to speak to the... The people who are not heard is what Gary was representation. Yeah, as we, well. we need to we need to continue to 
engage with them. And by the way, that description is the environment movement in a nutshell, which you have just described. So, i.e., the people who are most impacted, and you mentioned the low-traffic neighbourhoods. That's why, I mean, if, if you look and you see who's behind it and who has navigated it, it's like, oh, wow. It is those people you were talking about because they have power. They can get yeah. those things. It is actually, yeah. I call them what? Homeowners. Homeowners are so powerful mm. in this country. They are. A representation, you said. How do you mean? Yeah, what representation. You... What I mean is, you know, I went to a listen, there's people from all over the world, but they might as well all be from the same place. Like, they might as well have all gone to Eton. You know, mm. there's these people who are, they're all from money. They're all from money. And I remember when I was a kid, right, you know, I grew up poor. And, you know, I remember when Dizzy Rascal came through and I heard the guy like, this guy sounds like me. And nowadays, right, I don't hear people who sound like me on the TV. And it's, you know, you don't need to be from London. You know, you could be from Manchester or you could be from Newcastle, you could be from Belfast. You know, people know when they hear an accent from someone who's experienced poverty. People can tell, you know what I mean? And we just don't hear that. And especially in the world of economics, it drives me insane because the economy is not the same for a rich person and a poor person. You know, it's not physics. I say if you drop a rich person and a poor person out of a window, they fall at the same speed. But the economy is totally different. <laughs> but if you do not represent poor people, it's just, like, look at what's happening now. Look what's happening now in the economy. Ordinary people can't afford to heat their homes mm-hmm. and feed their kids. Mm-hmm. And yet we've seen the biggest ever single year increase in billionaire wealth. No one in the media is talking about it. No one is talking about it. Who, who's talking about this? And, you know, people who have friends and family, like I do, who are experienced by this, they're feeling it on an emotional level and they want to know what's really happening. And that's why you need to represent these people. I get so incensed by it. And and I feel as if they are being used. Like, poor people are affected by air pollution. But they're always being spoken for. Yeah, as if they have no, you know, as if someone said to me, oh, poor people are this, poor people. I went, poor people don't have cars. Poor people are the ones standing at the bus stop. What are you talking about? You're not poor. Yeah, there's a lot of ventriloquizing going on. Yeah, you don't understand. And I get... I just look at them sometimes when they start talking about poor people. Or when I first started, one thing I was surprised at in the movement is there were a couple of people whose children had asthma. Barely anyone's child had asthma. And I would go to hospital. Yeah. Everyone looked like me. Yeah, yeah. But in the in the movement as a whole, yeah. I don't, there are some of us there. But nothing like when I go into hospital and... It's that sort of thing when you go to hospital, you know how you kind of like nod at each other because you're kind of all there for the same thing. And I am not saying that certain people shouldn't campaign, but for some people, I just think it's a job. It might be something they're passionate about for a bit. But for me, this is my real life and it's slightly different. I think I can go along, I can talk to people and everything, but at some point, this is what happens. We go our separate ways. Yeah. But then I wouldn't want people to go through what I've gone through, by the way, because ultimately it would mean they would need to lose a child. But Mm. do they understand, you know, do any of them live near a main road and stuff like that? No, they don't. Some do, but majority, (laughs) of course they don't. I did want to ask, actually, how people feel who, you know, so your family and your friends, for example, who you were talking about, or maybe the people from your old school where you worked. How do they feel about you now? Do they kind of look at you differently? My mates (laughs) from back home, they love it. People ask me. Where are you from, by the way? I'm from Ilford. You know Ilford East London? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're from South London, right? Yeah, I am. And and hello to my Bermondsey boys. (laughs) Sorry, I just had to put that in my Bermondsey boys (laughs) there. They're they're very special Make sure you include that, guys. Um, I'm saying hello to the Glasgow massive. But people, I get asked this sometimes, and I think it's it's funny. You know, some, I think some of the people in the media think, yeah. "Oh, Gary's going to make money. His friends from back home will be disappointed." They love it. They love it. They love that I still wear a hoodie and trainers. You know, they love that I'm still wearing my. They, they love that I still talk like this because when I was in school, 
<laughs> Seriously, people said to me, look, Gary, you're really smart, but if you want to be someone, you've got to stop talking like that. Well, I didn't stop talking like this. Because for me, I want people to know where I'm from because what I realised when I was at LSE is people think, some people genuinely think the reason there's no people like me in those spaces is because people like me are stupid. And I want people to know where I'm from because I grew up in those spaces and those people are not stupid. They're just not being given opportunities. So for me, I still talk like this and I still look like this and everyone back home loves it because they see themselves represented the same way I loved it with Dizzy Rascal. Dizzy Rascal's a millionaire. Doesn't mean I hate Dizzy Rascal. Dizzy Rascal's from down the road for me and I respect that and I know he come from a difficult background like I did. They love it. They love it. Everybody yeah, loves it. Yeah, I, I think I see my family on... But then I come, you know, background is from Ghana, very driven. So we have doctors, lawyers in our family. Okay, after COVID, they, they hadn't seen me for, for a while. And that's when the whole thing kind of happened, the landmark victory. But when I see them, yeah, every now and then they might say something, but I've still got exactly the same friends. Nothing has changed. My kids refuse to move. I've yeah. been, no, seriously, I've been slated for that. But <laughs> I say to people, uh, where we live, the cemetery is about pff, on four, six minutes. Yeah. And they want to stay there and they want to pop in and it's see the their community sister. As well, isn't it? Yeah. Oh my God. Are they loved in our community? Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other ball game. Seriously. It's like, hello. <laughs> no, of course they don't want to move. Yeah. Um, but no, they feel comfortable there because they were born there. And, you know, we shouldn't have to move. I, I will say this again uh, yeah. to to those listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They need to sort out the South Circular. We we love the community. We love where we live. We love the people. So people see that as the solution to everything. Why don't you just move? Well, we 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 don't want to move. Look, if my twins were being rushed to hospital like my daughter was. We will be out yeah. in a flash. If you move, someone else will still be living in that space. Ab- right? Absolutely. So rather than trying to say, I, I can't believe we get criticised for that. If you live, look, if you live 500 metres away from that road, or sorry, up to 500 metres away, you are impacted. That's thousands upon thousands of people. Not everyone can afford to move, by the way. People do realise that there's like a fuel thing going on, an energy crisis. Not everyone's got the money or the option to move. And the other thing also, the hospital is down the road from us. Mm -hmm. So if there's any emergency, trust me, we'll be there like a shot. But people don't have to live our life anyway. Thanks so much, Gary and Rosamond, for coming and speaking to us and for sharing your stories. Yes, thank you very much. No, thank you for um, uh, thank you for having us. I say <laughs> us because that's such a thing I do, being polite. I'm sure Gary can do his own thank you. Thank you from me as well. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really interesting. And what struck me was there's sort of a paradox there, isn't there? Because they were saying how important it is for voices like theirs to be making the important decisions but they also were saying how important it was for them to be able to speak freely yes i mean that is also that's always the kind of the eternal problem of anyone who i think wants to go into politics at some point they have to decide how much are they going to toe the party line and trot out the line you know, if only to get to the position that they eventually want to be and but by the time you get there have you so compromised yourself that you can't think otherwise uh, and it's that independent spirit one other thing that cropped up in the conversation which struck me was, of course, this idea of of being able to have those who are affected by inequality and, and poverty represented, you know, an authentic voice within politics and, and how that is achieved. I do wonder whether, you know, politicians will only campaign for those who vote for them. 
And I think there has been maybe a, an unconscious bias towards narrowing the message to only to those who they know will vote for them and paying less and less attention to those who, for some reason or other, just don't vote. And that tends to be people who are, uh, for want of a better word, marginalised. And I think that constituency is growing and the focus of politicians' efforts is on a smaller and smaller group of key voters. And something has to be done to kind of reverse that. Yeah, absolutely. Because occasionally you do get those very strong constituency MPs who will take up the cause of a constituent who's been through something sort of remarkable. I mean, I'm thinking of the case of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and her MP, MP, Tulip Sadiq, who tweeted, you know, you know, occasionally you make a change in this job because some MPs that I speak to complain just like these guys about how frustrating the system is and how difficult it is to change laws. Yes. And it shouldn't be occasionally, should it? It should be every day. It should be every week. And we hear about the individual cases where some one independently minded MP has made a difference or some one campaigner has made a difference. But there isn't yet in place a structure where everyone in in the country can feel that their voice will be heard and and that their opinions can filter through into, into government. That's it for now. I'll be back next week with Armando for our third episode. That's right. On the next episode, we'll be speaking to Professor of Politics and Director of the Constitution Unit at UCL, Meg Russell, and Barrister and former MP Dominic Grieve about the UK Constitution. What is it? Is it fit for purpose? And how can we change it? I can't wait to speak to them. And until then, bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to Westminster Reimagined, a special series on the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. Our executive producer is Chris Stone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.